Welcome to the Resist Bob Podcast, hosted by me, Melanie Dion. Join me this week and every week as I chat with the advocates and activists in your neighborhood at the intersection where policy meets people. Now, let's start the show. And once again, it's time for the Resist Bot Podcast. I'm your host, Melanie Dion. This is where we talk weekly about where policy intersects with people. And we've had a fairly eventful week today, of course. Well, when we're recording, this is the 7th. Moore versus Harper is being heard before SCOTUS. This is the North Carolina congressional gerrymandering case. That is being heard by SCOTUS today. So, of course, I'll be keeping you up to date with that. Also, Senator Raphael Warnock beat Republican challenger Herschel Walker, whose name I hope I never hear with politics again. I know this was a narrow victory and that was concerning for a lot of folks, which I completely understand. But you have to remember that Georgia's purple is a little more of a Burgundy, like a fine wine with voter suppression. So you basically got like Fulton County and DeKalb County standing between Georgia and 1861. So the victory for Raphael Warnock was a big deal. And it's done in thanks to organizers. The role of organizers in this election cannot be overstated. And while, you know, the regular folks we have our sometimes annoyances with the tactics because I think everybody's breathing a sigh of relief because they're getting a little break from the text messages. But it was necessary and effective. This is the type of work that needs to be done when you are dealing with suppression that is sweeping the country. This was Georgia's highest turnout for any race, not just runoff. This was their highest turnoff. And that's with Georgia using every suppression tactic they had access to. So that is impressive. And I want to give a special thanks to organizers. There were organizations like Black Voters Matter who were just working tirelessly to get out the vote. So we just have to remember that, you know, politicians are great. They have their function. That's fine and good. But organizers, we really look to them to move the meter, which takes me to this week's guest. I have with me activist Megan Lynch with the organization UC Access Now. Megan is also a ResistBot user, so yay for that. But right now, Megan and UC Access Now, they are taking the University of California to task for its lack of accessibility. So I want to first bring up Megan. Hi, Megan. Hi there. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much for being here. Can you first start off telling us a little bit about you and what you do and how you came to be affiliated with UC Access Now? Okay, well, I am sort of unusual. I'm a 57-year-old master's student at UC Davis in the Graduate Group of Horticulture and Agronomy. So I arrived here as a 54-year-old disabled student in fall of 2019. And even before the first quarter started, I could see there were, you know, issues in terms of the accessibility that... I tried to solve through the sort of channels that you're supposed to solve them. And when when that wasn't working out, I thought, well, if I'm going to have to do this much work for these very simple things that we as members of the public are entitled to and are paying for, I might as well do that work for more than just me. And 
I did start looking around for other disabled students. We'll get into it more later, I suppose, but just to keep this short, uh, basically kind of threw out this vision for what we could fight for, hoping to find more disabled students uh, who felt the same way and to find allies, hopefully, who also could see that this was a very unjust situation that's been going on for way too long now. Thank you. I, that, I mean, that really encapsulated. I want to ask you this, because we know we're, what, 30 what years after the Americans with Disabilities Act, right? So can you talk a little bit about how universities get around being noncompliant. And one of the reasons I'm saying universities and not just uh, the University of California here, which we will get back to, is that I was doing research and I was looking at an audit earlier this year that said there was 90% noncompliance across the board for university websites, for, for our institutes of higher ed website, and how it even manifested in little things like just a lack of accessibility among third party with third party software. Can you talk a bit about how universities get around noncompliance in that way? Well, let me start. I guess the best way to start about it is that I became physically disabled in 29. So I have the experience of what it was like to live in society not being disabled. Right. And how I thought of things then versus what I know and how I think about things now. So one of the things that makes this possible is the fact that, you know, and I use the word abled rather than non-disabled just because it's simpler, disabled and abled. Abled society, there's a kind of like de facto segregation that goes on. Most people do not know, quote unquote, out disabled people. Of course, there's some disabled people who have no choice about being out. It's very obvious they're disabled. But a lot of people have disabilities where you wouldn't know it unless they claim it. When you have a society that's built inaccessibly, which much of our society is, it literally fences people out of areas, right? Then abled people who are the sort of like in that hegemonic group in the society in terms of the myths we tell about each other and how we fund things and that kind of stuff, don't really actually know much about what day-to-day existence or anything is like for disabled people. And that means that who they learn that information from is from people who have like a vested interest in keeping that separation and injustice going. So because of that, you know, disabled people and some allies fought very hard for disability law in this country. Not And ADA is not the only one, but it's the most famous one. It did improve things. However, the mechanism for enforcement, it's not like there's an ADA sheriff that takes care of this. And because of this ignorance that a lot of folks have, Like, how would they know? Right. You know, they don't really know that many disabled people. They sort of think, well, that's illegal. Report that and it'll be taken care of. And that's not how that works. Uh, The enforcement mechanism, largely, as I understand it, and I have to say, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in disability law. But generally, you would have to sue as a disabled person. And disabled people happen to also be among the poorest in our society because society does a lot to impoverish us. We get punished financially. We have a higher cost of living. And then, for instance, when you see in other higher education, even community colleges do this, where instead of just offering what ADA says you should offer, just making accessibility or at least the highest common denominator of accessibility available by default, because disabled people are members of the public, we pay taxes, we pay for these institutions, you could just design them so they're accessible by default. We have this sort of rationing and policing system that gets used. And again, because 
there's this sort of segregation in society, there's not a lot of disabled people around able people to kind of talk back to that idea. And so everybody just accepts that that's the way it should be. And so because of that, the way that higher ed is able to keep from being accessible is that it takes enormous amounts of money. And then often disabled people are often, not everybody is, but some people's disabilities, a lot of people's disabilities really make them tired and stressed anyway. They're going through it in the medical system. They're going through it in the aid system. They're going through it for every single, like they have to fill out forms for every single thing they need in this society. It tires you out. So like even for people who aren't disabled, a, a lawsuit's very stressful and draining. So when the only people who are going to sue over this are disabled people, it really limits the enforcement of this law. And those who have a vested interest in keeping things this way know that. So they would rather put the fence up and just take their chances on who's going to sue them because they usually have more resources than the disabled person does anyway. So they can hire, you know, larger law firms who specialize in fighting these kinds of suits. That really speaks to the importance of intersectionality, Megan, because this is something that unless you're in that situation, how would you know? Unless you're in a social situation or in like a basic everyday situation with someone who is disabled. And you're right. A lot of people do not. A lot of people don't have that experience to build any kind of attachment to it. That leads to a lack of importance being placed on the need to sue as someone with resources, as someone, you know, outside of that sphere. And, and people that, assume that the government's, for... you know, enforcing the law. It's not off right. base to assume that, but it's a right. naive assumption. What you were saying about intersectionality is also important in terms of like a lot of the stock photos and illustrations are sort of like of white disabled people. And we have to remember that like disability is just one way of being marginalized. If you're marginalized by more than that way, then you can imagine how much harder it is for you to get the resources and, you know, speaking about cultural competency, same thing, you know, like something that's going to work for somebody who's white and maybe getting more privilege in society is more privileged in society, sort of more made for them than somebody who's marginalized in multiple ways. You know, maybe even what little aid that we do have out there in terms of resources, information, you know, community support isn't keeping in mind folks who have multiple marginalizations. And that is the absolute truth when you look at any segment of life. And this is something that Valissa Thompson said very early on in one of our earlier episodes. You have to look at that also through the lens of disability, the lens of what dealing with this plus a disability actually looks like. And that absolutely includes being marginalized. That absolutely includes if you're a Black woman and need abortion care. You know, if you are a black boy and need mental health care. All of that factors into it. So I appreciate you putting such a fine point on that, though. So what you, you know, what you've also done is taken action. Let's I want to get back to the University of California with you taking action. You started out with your demand festo and how that's or what sparked it. And I know you went into it a little bit at your intro, but can you put a little a few more details and context into from where you really got involved and, and took the next step and to where we are now, or at the very least to the Demandifesto. Yeah, the Demandifesto started as sort of a bullet point list in fall. You know, as I said, I was encountering it even before I started. And I started just making a list of things that I was encountering as well as things that I noticed. Uh, while I don't yet use a wheelchair myself, I, you know, had a really good friend who does. And so he 
helped open my eyes to some of the things. So I had some ability to spot those things. And at that point, I did not know that many disabled people on campus. There is no disability cultural center. So you go to the student cultural center, there's nothing there for disabled people. And so your only way of like finding other disabled people here would be to go to the rationing and policing agency. And then you feel weird because because <laughs> then you're like, you know, you're instead of getting to know people in this real regular way, you're sort of going around in the lobby of the place that's kind of policing you and going, hey, do you want to organize to get <laughs> it just felt weird. So it made it difficult. But it's so interesting. I was just going to say it's so interesting that you said that because that was another one of the things that I was coming across and how not only are universities, yours included, missing the mark in terms of, you know, these big glaring things, but also there were lapses of just making an extracurricular presence possible and accessible. That's an incredibly good point, because one of the things, and it took me a while to sort of see it, and this is even with me having been disabled all these years and having taken courses at community college as a disabled student before I came here. It really was a journey for me to, you know, because I was raised with this way of viewing things. And so even with the disability and even knowing how bad it was, I still hadn't, you know, I'm sure it's one thing if you're born disabled, you know, but if you are raised as an able person and then you become disabled, like there's a long journey in terms of like peeling off that internalized ableism. So even decades later, I'm still kind of dealing with that. But you're very right that like one of the things that goes on, we have this stereotype that it's like, oh, okay, well, all you have to do is fill out a form and then you can get this thing. It's not that much to ask of you. And we don't question why those things are there in the first place. But the other thing about it is that one of the issues that I had spotted before that quarter started had to do with inaccessible cycle racks here at UC Davis. And UC Davis is a campus that has gotten awards for being like a bike friendly campus, right? And yet they have the conception that there like is no such thing as a disabled cyclist. Why do we need anything like an accessible rack? And these racks to be an accessible rack, it's not special. Like these kind of U racks I've seen in most cities I've lived in. Here it's different. So I went to talk about these things and what that reveals, it, like they said, I got two different answers from the policing agency here, the rationing and policing agency. They said, oh, it never occurred to us that that was something that needed to be accessible. And then from the transportation and parking services here that is in charge of designing, siting and you know, selecting, buying and siting those racks. The immediate knee-jerk response was, this isn't covered under ADA. That's not correct, but that was their immediate response. So the conception here, the thing is, is the way the university approaches accessibility is not like, this is a public university, disabled people are part of the public, therefore. Their response is, this is a law, we don't want to comply with the law any more than we absolutely have to. And so there's two separate offices, one for students, one for employees, because the law differs somewhat. So you see, it's not coming from a, ca a place of inclusion or, or care. It's coming from a place of compliance. And because it's coming from a place of compliance, you'll notice that everything they offer is related only to being in the classroom or work. You know, when you get a brochure 
for a campus, when you're shopping, where your student's going to go, where the student wants to go to, they have shiny pictures, not so much of like, you know, here's your accessible chair in your classroom. <laughs> Everybody else gets ex- gets pictures of cool events they can go to and clubs and, you know, isn't this a nice, let's look at the Arboretum here or whatever. These things aren't accessible here. You get this bare minimum version. So like even your wheelchair accessible transportation here, we'll get you to school or to work, but you're not going to be able to get to this other campus event because we don't consider that something that you're entitled to do like everybody else. The The question you had there just reminded me of that. That's all. No, I, I was just thinking about the lack of effort and the lack of care that it takes. And, and one of the knee-jerk responses people often have is, well, when you have a robust student life for everyone, including disabled people, then that should be, you know, makes for a, a better campus experience. Yeah, that's great. Love for everybody to have a great campus experience. But right now we're talking specifically about meeting the needs. Universities are not places of survival. You go to universities to thrive. And that is not just for able people. That's that's not just for able students or able faculty, but that's for disabled students, faculty as well. How do policies factor in if they have visiting family with a disability? Does that, just thinking in the broader way of how a lack of accessibility can truly branch out? Or even just visitors in general, because again, the general public yeah. is paying for the University of California and the University of California has arboretums, botanical gardens, museums, you know, sculpture gardens. There are all sorts of things that UC has that the general public goes to. Why shouldn't those be accessible? What I want to add some perspective to here, and it's not a perspective I came to immediately either, is it seems like lack of effort, but actually it's effort in another direction because these offices of rationing and policing grew up after ADA. So what they decided was rather than use public money to make things accessible, They would use it to hire more lawyers to defend them, to hire mostly abled people in these offices, by the way. It's not disabled people who know what lived experience is like, who are even handling the rationing and policing. It is overwhelmingly abled people. So they get a good salary and benefits compared to the grad students who are currently striking, for instance. And their entire job is to make it hard to get accessibility and to protect the university from lawsuits by frustrating the efforts to fight. <laughs> so it is a lot of effort and actually money, public money. And sometimes the other thing that was appalling, and it's not as easy to get a nitty gritty budget as I would like as a member of the public, <laughs> but uh, through reading the student press here and, and an argument that the Chancellor May here at UC Davis was making, The student body here had a referendum because they were trying to decide, do we still want to have, like, whatever the amount was, taken out of undergraduate fees to support NCAA-type sports here? And the chancellor was arguing, these student-athletes come from, you know, difficult backgrounds, and just like disabled students, you should be funding them. (laughs) Yes. So that was what let me know that what actually funds the office that rations accessibility and polices us is our own student money to some extent. But there's also public money that goes in the general public. So this is, it's, it's actually not a lack of effort. It's an effort that's been diverted. So public money Absolutely. gets diverted to this and public effort gets diverted to this, which is entirely about keeping 
a sector of the public, including, and this is another thing that I, people need to process too, is that disability is a very easy club to join. And particularly the way our healthcare system is right now, particularly with the way the pandemic handling in the nation is going right now, it's an extremely easy club to join. So they're really keeping you, future you from being able to use these resources. And University of California is not unique in this. As you, you pointed out, higher ed in general tends to approach things this way. But UC is a particularly good system to work on because it is one of the largest, if not the largest, public university system in this country. And it also, it's the largest employer in California, and it is one of the largest landlords. And it also runs medical centers. It runs nature reserves, research stations that, you know, it's an enormously important part of our economy. And California's economy is one of the, you know, if it were a state, would be like the sixth largest economy in the world. So it's really important to get this to be accessible to the public that's funding it, a great deal of whom are disabled or may become disabled. I appreciate you pointing that out. You're absolutely right on all counts. And that was something that it's not so much that I didn't think of it. It just it goes back to what you said earlier. You think when there are things in place, people are actually following the laws or there's some sort of procedure that they are in violation of. And the tactic has been to just not truly have a solid procedure. And I think another thing, too, and this is something where abolitionists have really helped my thought process around this, is that what we're sort of raised to believe is that, well, it's really important for us to have this bureaucracy because we need people to really prove they're disabled. Otherwise, people will cheat. And there are two things around that. One is we can look from the college cheating scandal. What actually happens to people who cheat? I mean, if we're going to treat a bunch of innocent disabled people like they're criminals because we're supposedly trying to protect disabled people from there being cheaters out there. What actually happens to the cheater? You will find usually that, you know, people who are claiming they're disabled and aren't, genuinely aren't, you know, and are trying to cheat their way into a college or something like that. The consequences of that are really small and not worth punishing a bunch of innocent disabled, actually disabled people over. But the other thing is, and this is where the abolition part comes in, is that if you don't ration resources, okay, there's some resources you can't help but ration. Because like, for instance, a disabled parking spot, if we made every parking spot in the lot disabled, there'd be fewer spaces. And sometimes you do want to do that, right? But a lot of times there are reasons, you know, there are functional reasons why that would be really difficult to do. So you have a limited resource. And in that case, you know, you do have an interest in trying to make sure that the people it's made for are the ones getting it. But in a lot of things, you know, when it comes to just being able to get into the classroom, the doors being wide enough, you know, the, there being a button to push that's going to open the door for you, things like that. These are not rationed things. And, you know, a wheelchair user is not going to care usually <laughs> if an abled person uses the kick button to open the automatic door, as long as that kick button's there for them to open the automatic door when they need to do so. So that's another reason that we get sort of trained into thinking that this way of making things is fine because we're trying to keep out cheaters and therefore we need to make this this rationed special request thing. And it's like, no, just make it all accessible as much as you can. And that's why I say highest common denominator, because, you know, some people are going to have access needs that are unique, you know, and then what you do is you treat people with respect 
and work it out with them as a person. But if you make it so that everything we have in our society is the highest common denominator of accessibility that we can make, it's going to be a much more inclusive society. And it's kind of like what happened with curb cuts. I mean, everybody uses curb cuts now. You know, UPS people use it. Uh, uh, abled, abled parents pushing, you know, a stroller use it. Cyclists who are not disabled use it, you know. And it's not generally not hurting people that other people are using it. It's something everybody can use. That's an excellent point. I want to talk a little bit about what happened with the action steps. When you, you formulated the action steps, you presented them. And I know pointed out not only the benefit for disabled students, but also, you know, some of these same things. This is something that there are times where it can be universally used and beneficial. What was the response afterward? Was the university communicative? Were they <laughs> we kind of know the answer to that? <laughs> like I, I kind of yeah. know the meaning. But can you talk about what that, you know, what that was like and what brought you here? Because obviously, like spoiler alert, we have a petition. So can you can you yeah. talk talk about that a little bit? Well, uh, my initial conception in my naive take is, you know, while I'd been sort of active following other people's stuff, you know, I'd always been somebody who would, if somebody gave me the talking points and I agreed, you know, I would move on things like that. But I'd never been the person to do this myself. So I didn't really know what I was doing and I didn't know, you know, I was pretty naive about how it was going to work. So naively, I thought, okay, (laughs) people are good people. They'll want to do the right thing. So we'll get like, you know, Within a week, we should be able to get enough people and really pressure the university and embarrass them into doing the right thing. That's not how it went. But in in any case, what I used at first was a tool that we got subsidized use of a tool that sort of political campaigns are used using. So it's like a back end. So that helped us generate a bunch of, you know, we could put in the email, we could put in the link to the Demandifesto, and we could make it so that it could be shared on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. And so we did that. And it took a lot to get signatures compared to just to compare, (laughs) like how much education is needed around this about why, you know, again, like, why would this be important and stuff? It's hard to get that all down into a a soundbite. So like, for instance, when there was a petition, you know, uh, to get free parking at the university, everybody is signing that, right? But trying to get this signed was harder because people didn't know as much about it. But in the initial days of it, it was very successful in the sense you could see there was a little bit of a panic coming from certain (laughs) offices, I think particularly because I don't know exactly. Maybe it was the email headers or something, but they almost seemed to see that it was a a political tool, like something, a campaign tool. And that really put like, you know, (laughs) put a fire under somebody's butt. (laughs) And so uh, the tool addressed the governor, the board of regents at this one board of regents email address. There weren't separate board uh, regent email addresses available to us. And then each chancellor. And so the governor didn't send anything back. I'm not sure. I'm trying to remember if the board did anything. And then maybe like only a third of the chancellors even bothered responding. Now, what was interesting to me was that the ones who did, did stuff like promise that they were going to read the Demandifesto and get back to us. And that never happened. And Cal, for instance, said, oh, we'll have our, you know, somebody get in touch with you because (laughs) this came out in July And it was issued on the 30th anniversary. This was July of 2020. It was the 30th anniversary of the ADA. And they they give us a response saying, oh, well, 
October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month, so uh, we'll have our coordinator get back to you to to uh, schedule you guys for something in October. And that didn't happen either. So I mean, it, yeah, I know your your mouth is open, and that's exactly how I felt about it. <laughs> yes, um, so October. <laughs> October's the only month you can do disability stuff. Right. We're all we're all booked up. I wow. Bring back shame. Please. Please. I'm (laughs) so I'm speechless on that. But now we're in 2022, right? And there has been (laughs) no no move. Like we've had two October since then. Three Octobers. It's been three Octobers and we're still waiting. Correct. So I want to talk a little bit about your petition that you have outstanding that you have with with ResistBot right now that I would love to encourage our California audience to sign. I know a lot of times our petitions are usually national petitions, but that's why it's going to be really important to share this one because we want to make sure that as many Californian users as we have or new users can get access to it, can see it, sign it, because this is something that is absolutely important. Of course, it's absolutely beneficial to us as a society as a whole to just be decent people. But also it is this is of utmost importance to our friends and neighbors with disabilities. So the petition is titled UC Access Now. University of California must be accessible to all. And if you'd like to add your name to this petition, you can use the call sign P-H-I-S-Y-V. Right now, I would love to get this. We, we have a starting goal of 100. If by the time you are listening to this, it is past 100, that just means the new goal is 150. And if it's at 150, then the goal is 200. Let's run it up because this is something that is incredibly important. Can you speak, Megan, to the ideal steps that you have, your ideal next steps from the university? What would you ideally like to see happen? Well, the manifesto was written in 2020, and God knows it needs an update because, you know, some of our experiences in the time since then have changed, you know, what we would like to ask. For instance, I think at the time we were sort of thinking, well, you know, a kinder, gentler rationing and policing (laughs) uh, infrastructure would be good, whereas now we would rather just do away with that entirely. But Mm -hmm. um, the fundamental action steps that we uh, put in the manifesto are that, you know, UC should set as policy that ADA is a ceiling, not a ceiling, but a floor. I'm sorry. It's the minimum standard. That's the bare legal minimum you can get away with. UC and far too many sort of treat it as if they even reach that level, they go, woo, we're at the finish line. You know? <laughs> and it's like, no, you've, you're at minimum wage is what you're at. You're at what the least the, that you're legally supposed to be able to get away with. And then to set, uh, as you see, policy that disability is part of diversity. It should be in DEI programs that would feature disability and and its intersections. And that uh, the DEI offices must hire diversely disabled people, by which I mean not just that people have a variety of intersections in terms of other marginalizations, because that's incredibly important, but even a variety of disabilities, because, you know, there's there's lateral ableism where people know their own experiences really well, but like don't know 
those of other disabled people. And so you really need just as, you know, as much diversity among disabled people as possible to be able to do a truly accessible and inclusive experience in our public university. All the infrastructure that they're not taking care of because like it's older buildings. And so they figure, well, this was pre-ADA. We don't have to do anything. Well, tough luck. Time's up. You know, you got <laughs> you got to change and make those bring those buildings up to date. And that's also important in terms of the pandemic, because that's being used as an excuse to not upgrade the HVAC systems to MERV 13 or above. There's, you know, because like some of them, it's not enough to put new filters in. They'd have to upgrade the whole HVAC. And it's like, well, do it. You know, it's a good time to upgrade your ADA uh, and above standard anyway. Getting affordable, accessible housing for undergraduate and graduate students uh, here at UC Davis, there is no priority. Like if I'd had a child, I could have gotten into grad housing here. Uh, If I'd had a romantic partner, I could have gotten priority in the grad housing here. But as a disabled person with access need, I had, and not a child and not a romantic partner, I had zero priority. So you've got to make it so that for those disabled people who have access needs where they really need to be close to campus, or they have other access needs that could be solved through university housing that aren't solved through looking at an apartment or going somewhere else, because to be honest, even among quote unquote affordable housing, it's often not accessible and that's got to change. So, you know, they have to admit and hire diversely disabled students, staff and faculty in the at least the proportions that disabled people exist in the general population. They've got to publish statistics on these things, which they do not currently do. Uh, and they have to fund and compensate working groups with decision-making capabilities at each campus, medical facility, lab, field facility, and extension center so that they can identify what needs to be worked on so that it's not just people going, oh, we need, you know, now we have a new compliance goal, but they don't know anything about accessibility and they don't have any lived experience of being disabled. Instead, you need to make sure that we're hiring and admitting to school the kind of people who represent the diversity we see in the public. And that should be happening generally as well, not just with disability issues. And so there's got to be an audit of UC initiatives and construction projects that are already underway to correct for any lack of accessibility before it becomes literally set in stone. So an example of that is like there's a new building that just opened this year here. And the two great centerpieces of this teaching and learning center here on UC Davis are two gigantic concrete stairways with study areas that are benches that are adjoining the stairway. And these are meant to be gathering areas. And, you know, how is somebody who uses a wheelchair or mobility scooter or anything supposed to do that? And they designed a building post-ADA. They designed this as the centerpiece. So it shows the enormous either disconnect if it's innocent Or if it's not innocent, it's basically saying, hey, we don't mind taking your taxes, but we're going to use them to build this thing you can't use. There's more that, you know, like funding scholarships and fellowships. It's very difficult for for disabled people uh, with certain disabilities to even get some of these uh, scholarships because, for instance, the yardstick like GPA wise that you're being measured by, you're being measured by a system that is designed like in a way that's hostile to you. So it makes it hard to perform up to that level. Uh, So we have to make sure there's funding and stuff that makes it possible for disabled people to be here. And there's a couple other ones, but, but it is broken down into sort of bullet point. And then we give more background in the demand manifesto about ableism, about the medical model of disability. And then there's a lot of sort of like bullet point examples at the end to like be really nitty gritty about this is something we've observed and other campuses no doubt have other examples. (laughs) Let's get to work. 
Yeah, I truly appreciate that. Again, it's it's not just UC. That's that's the breathtaking thing about it. This is something 90% across the board is a strong number, but it also goes back to what you said about there not being enforcement, not when it when there's no adequate enforcement and the the view is that this is the ceiling and not the floor. This is even that, not even meeting the floor, <laughs> not not yeah. not nope. meeting, not even meeting their ceiling and being completely fine with missing the mark is absolutely astonishing. I want to thank you so much, A, for your work, B, for joining me, helping me learn. There, there's so many things, you know, you, you can read certain things, but grasping the concepts. I really appreciate some of the fine points that you put on this conversation today. I can't even begin to tell you. So can you talk, because I know this is not easy work. Can you let people know who want to help, what they can do, how they can help, whether they are local or national? For those in California, I would definitely uh, recommend pushing the resist spot petition and to get the governor, get the regents, get your state legislators to uh, to push on this issue, because the, the regents and, and UC chancellors will respond to political pressure from above them because that's you know where a good deal of their budget comes from. If you're within the UC system, you can contact us at ucaccessnow at gmail.com or you can follow our Twitter account at AccessUC and we have other addresses that we're on social media. We do presentations within UC. So if your department or your you know student club or whatever wants to have a presentation, when we have the energy and time, we're happy to do that. And that's actually a big deal because part of the initiatives, you know, we've had an influence in terms of the, the current UC strike, UC UAW strike. There were in initial contract proposals, access needs articles that would have pushed the university to go beyond ADA in terms of making things accessible for workers. So it would have dropped the medical documentation requirement, for instance. And to just show, again, that this is not a mistake, an innocent mistake on UC's part. UC fought these articles about as hard as anything they fought on that contract. And they got dropped by our bargaining teams. So another way you could help is that, you know, if you're one of those folks who's kind of like going, yay, I support the strikers, you know, make sure you mention those access needs articles because we, it's a crucial time right now to let the rank and file know about the need for this and to support the disabled workers who have already been working all year on these access needs because we need to get those back on the menu in terms of any kind of agreement that gets uh, made. But part of the reason we were able to make and influence and educate was because of these presentations. So if you are in UC and any, you know, wing of UC student club or whatever, we're happy to do presentations. And of course, if you want to volunteer for something also, you know, contact us through social media or the email address I gave. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Megan. I want to thank you for joining me again. Thank you for your tireless work. Anytime, anytime you would like to come back, by all means, you are more than welcome. I also want to thank you folks for joining me this week. Thank you so much for taking your time out of whether it's your morning or your afternoon to listen to the Resist Bot podcast. Remember that if you want to support the petition from UC Access Now, you can text PHIS as in Sam. YV is in Victor to 50409. You can also send a message through Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or Telegram. 
If you'd like to start a petition of your own, especially if you're not a California resident, text RESIST to 50409 or any of our many keywords. And you can also, if you also like who we are, if you like what we do, then you can text DONATE to 50409 and become a monthly donor starting just for only $5 a month. You can tell them Mel sent you and I'll shout you out on the next Mel's Morning Mug on Mondays. Or I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to shout you out anyway, but by all means, tell them I sent you. And if you want to listen to this podcast, if you'd like to subscribe, and of course you do, go to resistbot.live. We have pretty much any podcast platform you can think of, and I am certain that yours will be there. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be in your AirPods next week, same time for the ResistBot podcast. Take care. The ResistBot Podcast is a production of ResistBot Action Fund, a social welfare nonprofit organization. ResistBot is funded by monthly donors like you. Support ResistBot by texting DONATE to 50409. You can learn more and see a complete guide to using the service, a real-time list of trending petitions, learn how to organize your own pressure campaigns, or launch your own voter pledge drives at www.resist.bot. Thanks so much for joining, and we'll see you next week.